Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. I'm Greg. And I'm Lindsay. And we have another great show for you today. Um, But on this episode, I think we're going to deviate from our normal formula and skip the plugs and intro banter we typically do at the top of the episode because we have some important updates and announcements here at the top of the show. So let's uh, let's dive right into it. So I just wanted to give all of you a heads up about where things are at and where my head is at and where Stronger by Science is going in 2024 and beyond after reflecting on some of the things that have gone well and some of the things that haven't gone quite as well uh, over the past year or two. So if you follow our content elsewhere, like if you subscribe to the newsletter um, or just follow what we post on the website, You'll be aware of quite a bit of this already. If you just listen to the podcast, some of this may be new. Um, and you might be wondering why we had uh, a few weeks off this fall. Um, the reason for that is we were looking for a new podcast editor, which was discussed in an article on the website. Um, but yeah, so if you just listen to the podcast, uh, we published an article in November titled The Future of Stronger by Science, which will be linked in the show notes and would probably be useful to read uh, for full context. But the basic takeaways of it were, number one, um, I have a bit of a tendency to let myself get stretched way too thin, and that had been progressively happening again Um, To the point that it kind of came to a head this fall into this winter. Um, And when that happens, it's not good. Uh, My my quality of life suffers. And more importantly, I think just in general. I know, that's not more importantly. Well, it's more important for the people listening to this. Fair enough. And I think... They also care about you, though. Well, I think it's... I think this next thing I'm going to say is more important because there are, you know... Depending on on the platform and the piece of content we put out, whatever, somewhere between tens and hundreds of thousands of people that engage with our content, and there's just one of me. So, you know, if my quality of life suffers a little bit, but things are better for everyone else, in a utilitarian calculus, you know, maybe my quality of life isn't the most important thing. Whatever. Um, We're not getting into that today. Yeah. But anyway, (laughs) so when... When I let myself get stretched way too thin, my quality of life tends to suffer, and more importantly, the quality of my work tends to suffer as Mm -hmm. well. Um, And yeah, just a lot of things had been adding up uh, over the past couple of years. So uh, until, until quite recently, I was responsible for virtually all of the Stronger by Science content. That includes the podcast, articles, research spotlights, etc., maintaining interactions in the Facebook group and subreddit, uh, virtually all of our content for Macro Factor, and an increasing number of administrative tasks as well. And I kind of let all of that stuff accumulate instead of trying to get help because I'm kind of wired to just want to do everything myself. Mm -hmm. And not necessarily because I'm a control freak. Like, I just find it almost rude to ask someone else to do something, uh, even when I'm paying them to do it. 
And that is especially true for things that I tend to find unpleasant. Yeah. Um, like if, if I'm going to outsource something, I generally outsource the things, <laughs> things you like that, that I like to do <laughs> because it's like, well, this this is fun. So like I don't yeah. I don't mind asking someone else to do something that's enjoyable. But like yeah. if I don't like doing something, I don't want to ask someone else to do it because like. No, I yeah. understand that. That's uh, tough, though. Uh, but yeah, so that <laughs> that uh, had been happening for mm-hmm. for quite a while, um, and I think I think that had just kind of gotten to the point that I finally was forced to realize that it was becoming somewhat absurd and counterproductive. So, like the first the first hire that we did was for a podcast editor. Yep. Uh, shout out to Real Callsy if you've liked how the last few episodes have sounded. Uh, that is his doing. I think he's been doing great work. But yeah, like, you know, I, I had taken over editing the podcast, which I didn't like doing. I didn't think I was that good at. And it was taking me like three <laughs> or four hours every time we put out an episode. Yeah. And I was like, I got a lot of stuff going on, you know, like I should hire mm-hmm. someone else to do yeah, this. Somebody just, else who specializes example. in that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the next thing and in, in kind of building on Point one of the takeaways from that article was just that I felt like the quality of our content had slipped a bit. Um, and, and the reasons for that are discussed in the article. But basically, a lot of it just comes down to how constraints had had changed over time. Mm-hmm. So back in the day, back back when I think kind of the golden age of Stronger by Science content was in maybe like 2015 to 2017, thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Um, I was coaching some. We were selling the eBooks. I think we were selling a program at the time. But yeah. we had a very simple operation. And, you know, there wasn't that much I needed to worry about on the business side of things. Yeah. So when it came time to write an article, I could just pull up a blank document and devote like th- not an exaggeration between like 20 to 40 hours per piece of like free content we put out mm-hmm. which is great like yeah. that's that's what i love to being able yeah. to do and you were able to do that quite often because it was your number one focus and you had the time to devote so we published a lot of articles during that time yeah um yeah both both like the quality and quantity of the output was very good um, and, and a lot of it was just because I had a schedule that allowed me to do that. Yeah. And as the number of demands on my time have increased, I've kept trying to do as good as I can for both the quality and quantity of, of the content. Um, but yeah, I mean, just, just constraints dictated that I couldn't put as much time into things anymore. And when I did try to put a lot of time into stuff, instead of it being something where for just, you know, a week or two straight, it was the only thing that I had to focus on and all of my focus, like, you know, when I when I would lay in bed at night, I would be thinking about whatever mm-hmm. article I was working on. And now, you know, not only are there actual time constraints, there are other things um, vying for my attention. Yeah. And so, yeah, like, I, I just think that um, I've continued to do the best that I could, but just as a natural result of some of the increases in responsibilities I've had, I do think that the quality of our content output has slipped a bit. Um, 
And number three, uh, in terms of takeaways from that article, was that due to the combination of administrative and content demands I had, I think I was falling short on both fronts. So Mm. talked about the the slipping content quality uh, a bit. But, you know, those those two things, like there was quite a bit of interplay there Mm -hmm. where when I did need to focus on content, it was typically because I was already behind on something Mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, shit. Deadline. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, my God, like I've been doing I've been doing like administrative stuff and like business stuff and we need to record a podcast tomorrow. I have not even started outlining it yet. So instead of instead of being able to kind of ruminate and marinate in a topic for a week or two, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, I got 24 hours. Like, let's <laughs> let's try to put together the best podcast we possibly can in the next 24 hours, just starting from scratch. Yeah. Um, and then there's a research spotlight that needs to get published and need to get an article out and need to get an article out for Macro Factor as well. So, you know, let's try to get all of that done over the next like two days. And then I would basically have to turn just everything off, like all distractions for that time to get all of that done, which was fine. I'd get it done. It would still be of of decent quality. But then when I would look at my email again, I'd be two or three or four days behind on shit. And then it's just kind of like a mad dash rush to try to get caught up there Mm -hmm. and you know, I'm I'm trying to get called up, but in a way that's just checking, like checking boxes instead of being able to actually like think deeply about the stuff that I'm doing. Um, and then, you know, by the time I was called up and maybe a little bit ahead, I would then once again be in a crunch for the next yeah. content that needed to get out. And so it was it, just burnout cycles, like because you would do those big pushes for content and then you'd be so burnt out. But you'd be behind on other stuff, so then you would immediately kind of have to jump back in, even though you needed some time to rest. Yeah, and it was just that over and over and over again. Yeah, so I, I was I was working as hard as I could and doing as good as I could, yeah, and not doing the best that I would be capable of in either domain, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it, it just that feels like shit. Yeah, like it, it <laughs> wasn't a bad feeling. It wasn't a good thing. Yeah. So uh, to be clear, like I'm not just here like self-flagellating or fishing for compliments. Mm-hmm. Like I know I've been doing like pretty good overall. Like I, I have still been pulling my weight in the businesses. Um, I do think that the content we've been putting out is not up to the extremely high bar that I I'd set for myself. Mm-hmm. Like I do I do still think it's been pretty good. It's pretty like, good. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm not trying to say like ah everything you just, I've done in the last two yeah. years has been shit. You have an incredibly high bar. Yeah, but yeah. it's it's like I think it's been good, but I shoot for great. Yes. You know? And that's what makes it feel meaningful and worthwhile to you. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Like I um I, I do get like a very immense sense of satisfaction from doing my very best and putting my very best work out there. And on the flip side, like this is just a weird little thing about me. Like when, if I feel like I owe someone something and I don't do the best I possibly can in giving it to them, uh, even, even if it's like acceptable, Mm -hmm. uh, 
I feel like very guilty about that. It's probably like Protestant up yeah, stuff. Yeah, you got all but, kinds of Protestant shit. But yeah, on. like that that is just how I feel. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like I like I, I do think the content we've been putting out is good. Yeah. But like I feel bad oftentimes when we publish it because I'm like, mm-hmm. I know it could have been better mm-hmm. if I had like three times as much time to work on it. Yeah. Um so yeah, like basically it it just hasn't been working for me all around. Like I was severely overworked and just very dissatisfied with the work I was doing. Um, yeah. So just uh, over overworked, feeling bad, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Um, put out that article, just kind of laying out. Yeah. Letting things. people know what's going on. Yeah. yeah. Letting them know where things were and what things would need to change. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've been working on the changes. We have. Yes. So we we have made some changes already and we're in the process of making some more. And a lot of those changes come down to hiring because uh, I've been trying to do the jobs of five or six people. And so that means we probably need to hire four or five people, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, like, I, like I mentioned already, we have already outsourced podcast editing. Once again, uh, shout outs to Rill. Um, we've brought on quite a few new moderators for the Facebook group and subreddit, and they're already in there absolutely crushing. Um, we've hired a full-time content person for Macro Factor, uh, that being Lee Peel. Shout out to Lee. Amazing, yeah. Um, she's been great so far and if you've been in the fitness industry for a while like you know lee and i'm honestly flummoxed that we were able to hire her in the first place but yeah so uh that's going very well and um we're looking into hiring some folks to help with some of the administrative tasks that had piled up for both businesses that had kind of fallen on both of us Mm -hmm. um and now on the stronger by science side of things, as it relates to you, dear listener, mm-hmm. um, we are bringing on Milo and Pack to work with us full time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a reason that they were the guests on the last two episodes of the podcast. I figure, I figure a lot of people in the stronger by science audience would be pretty familiar with them already. But, yeah, uh, you know, wanted to go ahead and and formally introduce them to you guys uh, on the podcast. Uh, by the time you're listening to this, they will have already started maybe like a week, week and a half ago mm-hmm. or so. Um, but yeah, so I don't know how many people who listen to the podcast read our emails, follow us on social media. So just announcing it here so you know uh, as well. And um, so yeah, we're we're really, really excited about that. And just personally, I don't know if... I will ever personally get back to the point where I can spend 90% of my time and brain power on making truly exceptional free content. Um, but Milo and Pac are both very, very smart and very, very talented. And they will be able to devote the vast majority of their time and brain power to making truly exceptional content. And I have absolutely no doubt that the two of them, plus myself, to the extent that I am able to focus on content and contribute to it, I, I have no doubt that we will be able to uh, not only return to the golden age of Stronger by Science content, but uh, exceed the prior mm-hmm. bar that we had set for ourselves. 
um, both in terms of quality and quantity of the output. And I am extremely excited about that. Uh, so uh, a bit of an announcement mm -hmm. for the podcast is this will be the last Lindsay and Greg episode. Um, Milo and Pack will be my co-hosts starting next episode. Um, and I think you are also not that upset about <laughs> not co-hosting anymore. Yeah, I'm not that upset about it. I mean, a lot a lot was in flux last year as we tried to sort all of this out, the stuff that you've talked about, and just try to reevaluate where we want Stronger by Science to go and what we want it to look like and how we can do the work that feels the most meaningful to each of us. You know, we've been doing this for over 10 years now. Um, but... All that was in flux, but we still wanted to keep releasing podcast episodes because the podcast like kind of surprised us with how big of an audience it grew and how devoted the audience was and just how supportive and great everybody has been. So even though we are trying to figure shit out, we still wanted to release episodes of the podcast. Didn't want Greg to have to do it by himself. So I jumped in here as the co-host and it's been fun. Like I really have had fun recording these episodes with you. It's the first time I've ever done anything so public with Stronger by Science. Um, usually I'm completely behind the scenes. Um, so I really, really appreciated the support I received from our listeners. But I'm not an expert in this stuff. Uh, <laughs> I enjoy talking about it and learning. But now that Pac and Milo will be working with us, I'm definitely excited to hand over the mic to them. They're both researchers in this field, and they're professional science communicators. They are going to have so much more to contribute to the discussions on this podcast than I did, even though I enjoyed what I could do. <laughs> you you crushed it on the aspartame episode, honestly. Like I, it almost killed me. I I do think that that's the best episode of the podcast we've ever done, and I I think yeah. a lot of that was due to your. Uh, your your journalism chops that you brought to bear on it. Thanks. Yeah, and I I had a lot of fun doing doing an episode like that that I could research really heavily and have a lot to say, but that's just not something that is in the cards most weeks. You know, like I probably spent twenty hours prepping for that podcast, and I just can't do that. <laughs> Like I have other responsibilities with my work and the podcast. Um, it doesn't make sense for it to be a primary focus for me because it's it's truly just not where my my expertise is. But the aspartame episode was definitely a highlight. And um, that was a real test to see who the true heads in the audience are, who's going to listen to us talk for six hours. Um, I'm, I'm amazed that anyone did, honestly. But uh, anyways, Pack and Milo, they're going to have they're going to have a lot more to contribute on an episode to episode basis, I think, um, because they are in the trenches on this stuff. So as they step in, I'll be stepping back into the role that I've had with Stronger by Science for 10 years now, which is just the behind the scenes project management, the marketing, the editing, the design Um I'm excited to get back to it. I, I had fun 
in my short stint as a podcaster, but it's time I got back to focusing on the things that I think I'm really good at. And I know I'm leaving it in great hands and that you and Pack and Milo are going to have so much fun. And I'm, I'll keep listening and I'll be around. I, I think I think your great curse is that you're too good at too many things. Like the, the, the main things you do for the business, you're exceptionally good at. I do think you have also been very good on the podcast. Um, and so a lot of people will will miss you and hate to see you go. But I'm I'm happy for you that you can you can hand it over because I, I know that you did have a bit of like fear and trepidation. Yeah, I'm an extremely private yeah. person. Um, I don't really want people knowing anything about me <laughs> or being like a public person on the internet. It's it terrifies me. So yeah, definitely much more comfortable uh, behind the scenes. Well, uh, I will I will miss co-hosting with you. I was going to say I'll miss you, but we live together. Yeah, so we'll keep seeing each other. In general we just don't have to do this together anymore. Yes, but I I, I have I have really enjoyed this. Yeah. Um, but I am also very excited about the next chapter as mm-hmm. well. And uh, dear listener, I hope you are too. So in two weeks time, uh, it will be myself milo and pack uh back with the stronger by science podcast yeah i hope hope you'll stick around and and give it a listen yeah so with that out of the way let's uh let's hop into the content here yeah we got a full q a episode today this this is a q a episode yes and uh if you were a member of the facebook group and subreddit you would have known that and uh, would have been able to submit questions to the podcast. Uh, if you're listening and you're like, damn, I have great questions that I wish would have been answered, and I didn't know that this would be a Q&A episode, guess what? Check out the subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash Stronger by Science, or Stronger by Science community on Facebook. So when we do have Q&A episodes, you'll know, and you can get your questions in. Um, but yeah, with with that out of the way, let's get into... The questions, uh, we have a few audio questions that people submitted to podcast at strongerbyscience.com. We have several from Facebook and several from Reddit. And uh, let's start with at least most of the audio questions first. So here is the first one from Tio. Hey, Greg. A quick one from my end. When it comes to researching relatively unfamiliar topics, let's say the impact of collagen on skin aging or maybe air pollution on health, do you have some sort of research framework you follow when tackling stuff like that? Cheers. So that question, how do you go about researching a whole new subject, Greg? This is this is interesting. I'm interested to see what your answer is because you do, you do know way too much stuff and I just don't know how you're getting all that stuff in your brain and when. Uh, yeah, so it, it's a, it's a multi-step process. And the first step is simply assessing whether it's something I actually need to understand on a granular level and more generally kind of scoping out how well I need to understand something period. Mm -hmm. Um, and also scoping out whether I have the time to devote to it in order to learn and understand it on a particular level. Um, and a lot of that is based on relatedness to things that I already know quite well. Um, and yeah, and, and just like how well I need to understand the topic. So, uh, the two examples that Tio provided there were, um, 
the effect of of collagen on skin and the impact of pollution on health, like air mm. pollution on health. And of those two, um, I would say that if I would need to understand one or the other, I would probably need to understand the effects of collagen on skin because that's more closely related to some of the things we talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and learning something about that may have tangible benefits for other things that I might be interested in. So, you know, I, I might be interested in the impact of collagen on tendons or ligaments or bone health, potentially, uh, as it relates to exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, and if collagen is is impacting, like if collagen supplementation is impacting skin, that would also be due to collagen synthesis. There, there would probably be some overlapping pathways there. So, you know, it, it might behoove me to learn about that. And since we talk about supplements, some um, and collagen supplementation is popular. Uh, some people take it for, you know, muscular connective tissue related reasons, but a lot of people take it for skin related reasons. You know, it it might it might behoove me to try to learn a lot about that. Um, so, you know, I, I might say, hey, this is something that if I'm going to learn about it, I should learn about it quite well. Mm-hmm. But I might be able to pick it up at a high level quicker than other things because I do already know some stuff about collagen synthesis and connective tissue health. Um, so yeah, th- that would be, you know, the first step of screening versus the impact of, of air pollution and air quality on health. I don't know. I don't know lung stuff quite as well, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, you have famously bad lungs. I do have famously bad lungs for if on a, selfish level it probably wouldn't yeah maybe you should maybe you should learn about Um, lungs but it's that's far enough from my area of expertise and the stuff i talk about that like if i wanted to to learn a little bit about it i i would be fine being able to like learn a a little about it so if someone was just like hey how much Mm -hmm. does air quality matter i could just be like yeah yeah, if air quality gets bad enough, like it's gonna fuck you up in like some of these ways, maybe. But you know, I, I wouldn't need to know all of the details about it. Um, but since that is less related to things I already know about, getting a moderate level of understanding about that question would probably take me about as long as getting a, you know, close to expert level of understanding yeah. about collagen and skin. That so, makes sense. So yeah, that's kind of the first thing. Try to figure out how much do I need to know and how long do I think it would take me to learn this? Um, Step two is if it's something that I do think I need to understand really, really well, like all of the ins and outs, um, I'm going to look to see if I can find a textbook about it. And, um, you know, most of the time I'm going to purchase those textbooks uh, I would never pirate a textbook, but there are places uh, te- textbooks are expensive, and I've heard that there are places that interesting one can maybe find, especially like older editions of textbooks mm. for free. Okay. Um, and you know we don't we don't condone that, but mm. uh, the answers are out there if you're willing to look. <laughs> <laughs> Conspiratorial, <laughs> uh, but but yeah, like if if I do need to know something really 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 well. Um, especially yeah. if it's a brand new topic that I don't have good, like baseline knowledge about already. Um, oftentimes I'll start with a textbook. Um, and sometimes two textbooks, 
Like if, if it's a big enough topic where there would be like an undergraduate textbook that kind of acquaints you with the topic and then like a graduate level textbook that would like a lot of graduate level textbooks are essentially just a series of narrative reviews written by experts in the field that Mm. go more into specific research findings, like Mm -hmm. more granular mechanisms. So depending on, yeah, just like depending on how well I need to know something, maybe just like kind of the undergraduate level textbook to get my feet wet, maybe both just to get like super well acquainted with something. And I'm not going to pretend like when I get a textbook about a topic that I'm going to need to put content out about a week from now that I read it cover to cover every single word. But like, yeah, like if if you've done like some skimming and speed reading, like, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you were a history major in undergrad for quite a while. You know how to skim and speed read. Yeah, that's that's true. Most <laughs> most of that superpower. Most of history coursework is just getting pretty decent at speed reading. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so so step two, if necessary, is start with textbooks and then step three or step two, if I'm not going the textbook route. Um, is actually getting into the literature. Mm -hmm. And that is generally going to start with looking for two specific types of reviews. Um, I'm generally going to look for systematic reviews and or meta-analyses that focus on outcomes. And I'm going to look for reviews, which will typically be narrative reviews that focus on mechanistic underpinnings of whatever the phenomenon is. And this is very important. I look for them and I read them in that order. Uh, Outcomes first, then mechanisms. And the reason for that is there's a lot of stuff that looks really good in like in a Petri dish Mm -hmm. or in like rodent research where like they knock out a gene to like test the mechanistic impact of like some particular protein or enzyme on some outcome Um that ends up like not really panning out in practice, but like the mechanistic story can be very, very compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if you start with mechanisms that can lead that that can color the way that you view outcome based research in a way that that would lead you to to veer from a relatively like strict em- empirical path, which is what I tried to stick to. Mm-hmm. Um you know, like if, if there's a compelling enough mechanism and then the outcome based research, there's a lot of null findings. You could be like, oh, well, that mechanism is so compelling. Like it must just be a problem with like dosage or the population they did or like how long the studies ran. Whereas like if you start with the outcomes that helps keep you grounded where you can be like, hey, look, based on all of the ways that people have tried to tackle this thing before, it maybe seems to be very effective. Maybe it seems to have a small effect. Maybe it seems to like there's a lot of null results, you know, like it, it it gives you good grounding in terms of like actual longitudinal findings. What do we see when this when this thing is implemented? Mm-hmm. Um, and then if there are compelling enough mechanisms, once you've once you've started with the outcomes, then you can think about it a little bit more where it's like, hey, what what like other competing pathways may have made this mechanism not pan out in practice, you know, Um but anyway, yeah, so so two different types of reviews, outcome-based reviews, mechanistic-based reviews. Start with the outcomes yeah. before diving into that's the mechanisms. That's interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Um and then uh and then the last thing or like the last couple of things would be 
if there's still any like basic physiology that I don't understand after getting this far down the rabbit hole, mm-hmm. I'll just try to read up on that a little bit more, which like usually that's usually that's like a standard biochem ref. Um, cause I mean, there, there's by the time, by the time you're getting into published literature on a topic, research is written for experts in the subfields that care about that research. And so there'll be, there'll be a lot of things that are just taken as rote that don't have to be explained in every paper. Right. And so if you're not, if, if this is like your first exposure to like an entire field of physiology, you don't have the foundations. Correct. Yeah. So, so um, with like the, with the example of air pollution and lung health, like there's, I mean, I think I think that it's almost a matter of like unknown unknowns. Like I don't know that much about the lungs, and so I couldn't even like make a list of of just like physiology stuff mm-hmm. that I don't know that well about the lungs. But like, you know, I'm I'm sure that there's stuff related to just like the gas exchange between the alveoli and the pulmonary capillaries that like I just that wouldn't be covered in studies. On the right, topic, just they because they just assume you know that already. Yeah, because everyone who's doing lung health like would know that yeah. like the back of their hand. But like, I might need to learn a, a little bit more about that stuff to understand some of the mechanisms discussed in the reviews that I that I previously mentioned. Um, so yeah, read up more on basic physiology. If I feel like I couldn't just fully chart out step by step by step how this thing is working, um, and then if relevant. Uh, I'll dig into some of the individual studies in the outcome-based uh, systematic reviews and meta-analyses. Like, if you're seeing different outcomes in different populations, and I'm specifically interested in something in a particular population, I might then, you know, if there's a meta-analysis with like 30 studies, but only seven of them are in the population I'm particularly interested in, then I'll just go ahead and download those seven studies in that population and read all of them. Um and by that point, I'm pretty close to the bottom of the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And if there are still things that are unresolved, like maybe there's some conflicting findings between research papers that, uh, based on my like relatively new understanding of this stuff as I've been learning about it, that that I can't quite reconcile yet, I might see if I can find um, some experts on the topic and bounce questions off of them, who are often the people doing research in the field. Um and oftentimes, like researchers like getting questions about their research. <laughs> like I think, yeah, I, they should. You should ask your questions to researchers instead of random people on the internet. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't going to say that, but yeah, probably so. Oh my god, the the number of emails I get where someone just like sends me a study and they're just like, "Hey, why did they do this?" I'm like, "There's a." There's an email address for the corresponding author right there. Like, mm-hmm. they would know. Why are you asking? And they love to get emails. Um, Greg does not love to get more emails. He has enough. I He has enough emails. I do get a lot of emails. But yeah, like, there, there, are, there are a very, very small minority of, like, famous academics who mm-hmm. have flooded inboxes yeah. and press wanting to talk about their research all the time that who knows maybe they're not going to respond to a little guy who just has mm-hmm. a technical question about a paper they did four years ago but most studies are never read like by hardly anyone That's um so sad. and 
academics work really hard and they, mm-hmm. they care about their stuff and they are mostly uh, laboring away in complete anonymity. And if you have like a good question about a study that they did or just their topic of research and you say, hey, I read your paper. One, they're like, holy shit, someone read my paper. Yes. And two, you care about it enough that you have a follow-up question. They're, they're typically going to be pretty willing to to help you out there mm-hmm. um, and they know it better than anyone i mean they'll they'll certainly know it better than you mm-hmm. or likely better than me um so yeah that's that's kind of like the very last step like mm-hmm. once once i've gotten through what is published and i still feel like i don't understand something it's like hey i'm, I'm gonna ask one of the folks who's you know i i've been trying to learn about this thing for two weeks they've been learning about it for two decades they're really deep in the muck. Um, they, they their understanding will be kind of more colored by just like experiential knowledge from like living in the field and doing research on the topic. Um, so yeah, like if if I get to the bottom of what is published and I still don't know stuff, ask experts to see if they can help fill in the rest. And uh, that's my topic, or th- that's my uh, that's my process. And I'll also note just in terms of what to expect. I I think a lot of people are hoping that there is a sort of like fast track process to get to a truly expert understanding of a topic in in kind of like a hacked way in yeah. like in a accelerated way. Yeah. And I do think that if I I do think that if you go through the process I laid out and, you know, really, really devote yourself to it. I think you can get to a greater than undergraduate level of understanding of a topic in about two weeks, which is a lot faster than going through school for like four years. But yeah, so much faster. You, you, to be very clear, will not have expert level knowledge about any topic going through this process in any like reasonable amount of time Mm -hmm. like true expertise takes years to develop no matter how efficiently you try to go about developing it um so i i would say that i would say go go through the process i just laid out and that's still going to take you time like Mm -hmm. what i just laid out that is a depending on the level of depth you're trying to get with something and and how much like pre-existing knowledge you have about related topics it's going to it's going to take somewhere between like 10 to 40 hours. Like it's a big time investment. Um but I I think that that will get you 80% of the way to understanding something pretty well. Like th- that will get you to the point where you might be able to be conversant with an actual expert in the topic, mm-hmm. but And then you can learn more. Yeah, but but don't uh you know, don't don't let the like o- overconfidence of like knowing a little bit Mm-hmm. Um, convince you that mm-hmm. really diving into something for two, three, four weeks has actually made you an expert. Like you're you're now like sub dumbass level on the topic, but you're not you're not that slick. Next question. Next question. Okay, our next question is from John. Hey, here's my question. So just how badly does insulin resistance and diabetes affect hypertrophy? 
One of my favorite bodybuilding channels on YouTube just posted a video that seemed to suggest that muscle growth is pretty much off the table for someone with type 2 diabetes. So does the science support this? Is it a sliding scale where someone with prediabetes has greater muscle growth potential than a full-blown diabetic? And finally, what is your opinion on whether metformin impedes hypertrophy? I've never heard this particular thing before, but it does feel similar to something you've talked about before. Weren't there things about insulin sensitivity mentioned in the P-ratio discussions and the article series from a few years back? Is this related to that? It is. It is. Yeah, that that was um, insulin resistance was one of the things that we discussed in that article series. So um, just for for people listening who are maybe newer listeners and haven't been around. When when was the whole P ratio saga? Was that like 18 months ago or so? I have 18 no, months. Time years. is nothing to me anymore. Who knows? Yeah, I'm not totally sure. But um, essentially, there there's this idea that that goes around that was really popular a couple years ago. I think it's waned in popularity. I'm sure a lot of people still believe it. Um, but basically, the idea is that higher body fat levels make it harder or, you know, depending on who's talking about it, maybe impossible to build muscle. Um, and so, you know, a couple years ago, uh, Eric and myself had a little back and forth uh, with with some proponents of that idea. Um, I just looked up the date. It was three years ago. Three, Jesus Christ, man. Yeah, I have no concept of the passage of time. Um, anyway, so yeah, the the, the idea that, that um, it's harder to build muscle at higher body fat levels, one of the reasons that people said that was related to insulin sensitivity, the okay. idea that as body fat levels get higher, insulin sensitivity goes down, and you, if your insulin sensitivity isn't sufficiently high, you'll be unable to build muscle. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, for for listeners who weren't around for that saga, you can you can read the articles, dive into the research. Um, it, it was, like I said, more focused on body fat levels than insulin sensitivity or type two diabetes. Um, but the two things are pretty closely closely related. Um, and yeah, so it doesn't really seem like higher body fat levels impede your ability to gain muscle. Nice. Um, and I do think that that, that, that overall takeaway does probably extend to the specific que question about insulin sensitivity yeah. that, uh, higher insulin sensitivity probably doesn't make it inherently easier to build muscle and vice versa. Lower insulin sensitivity probably doesn't make it um, certainly impossible to build muscle or if it makes it harder to build muscle, probably the effect is relatively small. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so instead of just leaning on the, the P ratio stuff from a while back, um, I did want to dive into the research, um, looking at the impacts of, of, uh, resistance training on diabetic populations in particular to make sure I was giving a good answer to this question. And there was a 2020 review by Acosta Manzano and colleagues uh, that will be linked in the show notes. The title was Beyond General Resistance Training, Hypertrophy versus Muscular Endurance Training as Therapeutic Interventions in Adults with Type 2 Diabetes Mellitus, 
a systematic review and meta-analysis. And um, so, yeah, it, it looked at um, the impact of resistance training on a variety of outcomes in diabetics. Um, unfortunately, only four of the studies were particularly looking at changes in lean body mass. Like there, I think there were close to 40 studies in this overall review, but uh, only only a pretty small handful of them were looking at kind of outcomes that were related to hypertrophy. But in those four studies, the uh, pooled increase in lean body mass that was found was 0.71 kilograms or about a pound and a half, which is notably more than zero, mm, um, which would imply that it doesn't make it impossible. And so you might be wondering, okay, 0.71 kilos increase in lean body mass in resistance training studies and diabetics. How does that relate to findings in non-diabetics? And so in the same year, 2020, there was a meta-analysis by Benito and colleagues. Uh, also will be linked in the show notes. The title was uh, A Systematic Review with Meta-Analysis of the Effects of Resistance Training on Whole Body Muscle Growth in Adult Males. And uh, so in that meta-analysis in healthy, non-diabetic adult males, um, what they found was about a one and a half kilo increase in fat-free mass, lean body mass, um, after about an average of 10 weeks of training. So even if you took it at face value, that would imply that type 2 diabetes might reduce rates of muscle growth by about half. So you're seeing about one and a half kilos in non-diabetics, about 0.7 in diabetics. Um, so yeah, if you just compare those two numbers, you would yeah. say, yeah, if you're if you're diabetic, you might build muscle a little bit slower. But you know, we're talking about a, a reduction of about fifty percent or so, rather than stopping hypertrophy entirely. Mm -hmm. um, but also. The studies in diabetics were typically done in older adults mm. and also typically used less intense, lower volume training interventions. Okay. Both, yeah. of, both of which would also tend to lead to less muscle growth. Right. <laughs> like, you know, if, if you just said, hey, we're going to, in non-diabetic populations, we're going to do young, healthy folks and we're going to train them pretty hard um, and we're going to do... Also, resistance training in older, also healthy folks, but they're not going to train quite as hard. The difference in lean body mass observed, like the 0.7 versus 1.5 kilos, you might still see that same difference, um, regardless of, of diabetic status. So I, I do think just comparing the outcomes of these two meta-analyses probably, if anything, overstates the impact of like the negative impact of type two diabetes on hypertrophy outcomes. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you can, you can analyze that and metabolize it as you will. Um, you know, you, you could credibly make the case that it does make it harder to build muscle, but maybe reduces rates of muscle growth by about 50%. Or you could say, Hey, just due to differences in study populations, differences in training interventions, uh, maybe it doesn't impact muscle growth at all, or if there is an impact, maybe it's smaller than 50%. Um, the research doesn't support the position that it makes it impossible to build muscle, certainly. Uh, personally, and this is just kind of on a purely hunch level, I wouldn't be surprised if type 2 diabetes did make it 
it like did have some negative effect on hypertrophy of of some magnitude um just because insulin is implicated in amino acid uptake and uh reducing catabolic signaling and also glucose uptake so it may influence how well you can get fuel to your muscles during a training session and how well you can bioenergetically recover from training so you know, maybe maybe the effect would be smaller if you like matched training interventions, but maybe uh, having slightly better insulin sensitivity could be superior in the real world because it might let you train a little harder and recover a little better. Like, like I'm I'm open to all of that stuff. Like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some degree of negative impact. Um, but I also would be surprised if that negative impact was particularly large, if it exists at all. Um and again, certainly, it, certainly, it, it doesn't make muscle growth impossible. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no reading of the research on the topic that exists that would lead one to that conclusion. Like, it's um, that that is not an evidence based takeaway. That is an evidence free takeaway. Um, so, yeah, if you have type two diabetes, maybe there maybe there's a negative impact, but. It certainly doesn't make muscle growth impossible, and if there is an impact, kind of the the upward constraint on how large it is, is maybe it reduces it up to 50%, although I suspect the negative impact is quite a bit smaller if it does exist. Um, the next part of that question was about metformin, whether that uh, inhibits hypertrophy. Honestly, like to answer this, I will first say... Um, now we're talking about pharmaceuticals. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a pharmacist. Take everything I'm about to say with a big grain of salt. None of it should be construed as medical advice, et cetera, et cetera. All standard caveats apply. Um, so with metformin, there was optimism that it would actually help hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. So there was a study protocol that... <laughs> that actually like got quite a bit of buzz on social media a few years back, I think 2017, um, which is kind of funny because like a lot of studies themselves are never read by anyone ever. So the fact that like a protocol for a study, like the study hadn't even been done yet, but just researchers were saying, hey, we're, we're pre-publishing this protocol about a study we're going to do. Um, it got it, it got a lot of shares on social media, made some waves. Um and it was basically proposing that metformin might improve muscle growth in people with poor insulin sensitivity. So uh, that that protocol will be linked in the show notes. Uh, title was Metformin to Augment Training Effective Responses in Seniors, parentheses, Masters, Study Protocol for a Randomized Control Trial. Um, anyway, so they published the protocol, then they did the study, then that study was published in 2019. And contrary to expectations, metformin did actually have a negative impact on muscle growth. Um, So that study will be linked in the show notes. Title was, uh, well, it's it's the master's trial. If you just search the master's trial PubMed, I'm sure it'll pop up. Uh, Or again, just look in the show notes, it'll be linked. Um, And so metformin didn't uh, didn't like ameliorate the hypertrophic response altogether. The people who were taking metformin and lifting did still gain some muscle, just not quite as much muscle as the people who weren't taking metformin. So it did still seem to have, it it did seem to have a net negative effect. Um, 
in terms of why that is, the kind of go-to mechanism would be related to AMPK phosphorylation. Um, not to get too too into the weeds, but um, AMPK and mTOR, if you want to massively oversimplify things, AMPK is sort of a master signaling regulator for like aerobic uh, adaptations to exercise. Um, and and what, what metformin does is it upregulates AMPK signaling and uh, like an increase in insulin sensitivity. An increase in insulin sensitivity is downstream of that AMPK upregulation. And so in some contexts, AMPK can have an antagonistic effect on mTOR. And again, massively oversimplifying, mTOR is kind of like a master regulator of kind of the, the upstream part of the hypertrophy signaling cascade. So, you know, the the M the if, if metformin has a negative effect on muscle growth, it's probably its effects on AMPK antagonizing the mTOR pathway, kind of blunting those hypertrophy responses. There's been some subsequent research looking at the transcriptomic effects of metformin on um, like intramuscular signaling, hmm. you know, finding that it impacts some of that stuff. There's also um, some rodent research, at least, suggesting that it may... Um, upregulate myostatin levels and downstream myostatin signaling, which can have a negative effect on hypertrophy. So um, yeah, if if metformin does negatively af- affect muscle growth, those are some of the current suggestions for like mechanistic explanations for why that would be. Um, but there is also uh, still some optimism in the research and medical community that despite that, metformin could still have positive effects on healthy muscular aging. Like it might make it a little bit harder to build muscle now, but it might help preserve muscle function um, into older age and people who are insulin resistant. Um, And also to make this extremely clear, there's not a ton of research on it yet. Like there's, there's the master's trial. And I think there may have been one other paper looking at the impact of metformin on training adaptations. Um, and so that that's why I'm saying, like, if it has a negative effect, here are some of the mechanistic explanations people are are working with now. Um, but I still wouldn't even be like positive that it has a negative effect. Again, just because we're dealing with a very, very small body of research. Mm-hmm. Um, but the research currently does suggest that it may have a small negative effect on hypertrophy outcomes. Um, but it does also improve insulin sensitivity like it it is a go-to treatment for type 2 diabetes especially like early stage type 2 diabetes for a reason and that's because it works really well for that purpose and even if it does negatively affect hypertrophy outcomes in the short term um, due to its positive effects on insulin sensitivity it could still improve healthy muscular aging in the longer term so um yeah i'm I'm not here to make any recommendations about whether fucking anyone should or shouldn't take metformin. Um, but yeah, I mean, it it may negatively impact hypertrophy, but we would need more research to confirm that for me to be like super confident that it does. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, I think that answers that question. So let's move on to a question from Alexander. Hi guys, so I was reading 
sort of an old article uh, titled Size Versus Strength, How Important is Muscle Growth for Strength Gains? And in it, uh, Greg, you write about how one of the contributors to uh, strength gains over time is uh, the effect hypertrophy has on uh, the the moment arm uh, of our muscles and how as those muscles get bigger, uh, that moment arm becomes longer and more advantageous. And so I guess I was just wondering, um, does that sort of mean, as sort of an extension from that, that uh, getting a really sick pump would would also potentially lead to some short-term strength gains due to the the similar, uh, like due to the increase in muscle volume and therefore uh, moment arm? <laughs> All right. I like I like how in-depth this guy is thinking. Um, Greg, could you explain a little bit more about where that question might be coming from um, and what you talked about in that size versus strength article? Uh, sure. Yeah. So I I really like this question yeah. because it's a it's a it's a perfect combination of highbrow and low lowbrow. <laughs> We're going to talk about internal muscle moment arms and the impact of getting a sick pump, which awesome. I love that combination. Uh, so yeah, where where this question is coming from, and this I will note may not be the best topic for an audio medium, but uh, dear listener, close your eyes and try to imagine <laughs> this little journey I'm about to take. Oh my god! To, to to just explain where this question is coming from. So your biceps mm-hmm. run uh, parallel with your humerus and insert on your forearm relatively close to your elbow and they're inserting at an angle like your your bicep is elevated a little bit so that tendon is coming down and inserting at an angle so just picture where that tendon is inserting uh there on your radius and just imagine like let's take the biceps out of it all together now and assume you have a string attached to your bicep insertion and it's pulling up perfectly in line with your humerus and think about that what that would do to your forearm it wouldn't it wouldn't make it flex at all right like it wouldn't cause elbow flexion because it would just be pulling your radius just right into the elbow joint mm-hmm. so that would not create a rotational moment to cause elbow flexion um, and it doesn't, it, it wouldn't matter how hard you pulled on that string, it wouldn't flex your elbow the way you want your biceps to. Mm-hmm. Now imagine that instead of being perfectly in line with your humerus, that that string was perfectly perpendicular to your humerus. So if your arm is sticking straight out at your side with your palm facing up, that string is inserting at your radial tuberosity and pulling straight up through the ceiling. Now, when you pull on that string, it will flex, like it will cause elbow flexion. It will draw your your radius up. It'll cause your forearm to move like that. Um, And so that's essentially what's going on here. So your your bicep is elevated up off of your humerus. It's inserting on your radius at an angle. And at least for getting elbow flexion started, the steeper that angle is, so the closer to being uh, perpendicular in this case being perpendicular to your radius, mm-hmm. the more um, a given linear contraction of your biceps will cr- will contribute to creating rotational moment at the elbow joint. Okay, 
Make sense? It does make sense. Okay. So as muscles get bigger, like as your biceps and your brachialis get bigger, they go from being down closer to the level of your humerus to being more elevated. Mm -hmm. And if you picture the tendon kind of coming out right out at, at kind of in the middle of the end of that muscle, the bigger your muscles are, the the um, less acute that insertion angle would be. So the greater distance there would be between that tendon and the middle of your elbow joint as the muscle gets larger. So that internal moment arm is getting larger. Yep. So not only do you have more contractile units in a larger muscle that help you curl more weight, also the leverage of the muscle to create a rotational moment at the joint is getting more advantageous as it gets larger. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You get it. I hope, I hope the listeners got it too. <laughs> so that's kind of the basis of this question. Yeah. Like it's, it's a, it's a, it's a physics question. That internal moment arm gets longer, more advantageous as muscles get larger. Mm -hmm. So he's asking, would that also apply to getting a really sick pump? Mm -hmm. Your um, muscles getting larger because of a pump. Yes. Yeah. And I don't see why it wouldn't. Like I feel, I think it theoretically could apply, um, but if and only if what you did to get a pump didn't also create enough fatigue to mask the effect. Yeah. Because um, like getting a pump doesn't acutely make your muscles that much bigger. <laughs> like if right, you, if they you, feel bigger. Yeah, but they don't look that much bigger. Right. Yeah. Like if if you got like three percent better leverage due to a longer internal moment arm but your muscles are now fatigued 3%, sure, yeah. you're creating more rotational torque than you would have if you didn't have a pump, but you're not actually creating more rotational torque than you would have if you were fresh mm -hmm. because the impact of the shifting moment arm is offset by the impact of fatigue. So that's like a practical consideration. Um, another thing is it wouldn't necessarily apply to every muscle. So the uh, article, um, like the the study from Vygotsky and colleagues linked in the size versus strengths article was modeling things in terms of the biceps. Um, and you know, the verbal explanation I just gave was also in terms of the biceps, but not every muscle has kind of that same architectural relationship with the joints that it crosses. Yeah. So for example, think about the hamstrings and how they insert on the ischial tuberosity, like they're, uh, at the bottom of your pelvis, and they're they're basically just coming straight up and inserting there. Mm -hmm. um, so if you got like a sick hamstrings pump, that's not necessarily going to change the leverage your hamstrings would have for for creating hip flex or hip extension. Mm -hmm. It might have a positive impact on the leverage they could create for knee flexion. Yeah, much in the same way like the biceps right. elbow flexion. But get a sick hamstrings pump, that wouldn't necessarily change those internal moment arms for hip extension the same way. So, you know, if if this did apply, it wouldn't necessarily <laughs> apply to every muscle equally. Um, and kind of going a level up and, and back to physics, it also wouldn't affect all, like, joint ranges of motion the same way. So... Um, you know what? I'm not even going to try to talk people through this. You can you can model it out for yourself or kind of like draw draw something to like help you think through this. But essentially, it would have a larger effect in more extended uh, joint positions and less of an effect or potentially even a negative effect on more 
flexed joint positions. Mm -hmm. And like if you've done a set of curls to failure and like Mm -hmm. gotten a sick pump, you've probably even felt this. Like if you're doing preacher curls, as you get fatigued, like you can you can get it like you can start the curl. Yeah. But then like the lockout, which is like really easy on your first couple of reps, gets harder and harder and harder as you get more and more pumped. And I think part of that is just the muscle itself is larger. And so there's kind of more compression between the biceps and the forearms. I wouldn't be surprised if part of that as well, though, is just that pump impacting, like like leading to a less advantageous internal moment arm for elbow flexion at uh, high degrees of elbow flexion as as the pump occurs. Um, so yeah, like it, it, it would generally have a larger positive effect at more extended joint angles than more flex joint angles. Um, in, in the case of flexors, it would be the opposite for extensors. So like triceps, mm. everything I just said, flip it around, flip it and reverse it. Uh, <laughs> perfect. So yeah, uh, to, to answer Alexander's question in a TLDR type of way. Um, yeah, I, I don't see why if, Actual hypertrophy did favorably impact uh, the leverage of a muscle for creating joint torque. I don't see why getting a pump wouldn't have the same effect, but in the real world, because whatever you're doing to get a pump is probably going to cause some degree of fatigue as well, it may not actually be like you, you may not be able to like measure the effect of the pump itself. Like performance might still be lower than it would have been, even if the muscle theoretically has like slightly more advantageous leverages. Okay, that is it for the audio questions. Let's move on over to Facebook. Yeah, so for these, these were text-based questions, so I am going to read them. So our first question is from Connor Smith. And Connor asked, You've talked in the past about half-life and clearance rates for common stimulants like caffeine and nicotine and how they can affect things like sleep quality. Are these rates largely independent of each other or are they each metabolized more slowly when they're both in your system? Is the same true for other stimulants like ADHD medications? Oh, man. Um, So this is a question that eh, it's... It's difficult to give kind of blanket answers on because hmm. the the actual answer is like it depends about like it if if you're so let's abstract the this question a little okay. bit like does consuming X impact the clearance rate of Y? Mm-hmm. Um, it largely depends on whether those two things are metabolized by the same enzymes and mm. or if either of them inhibit or facilitate the activity mm-hmm. of the enzymes that break down the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is not necessarily going to be the case for all things that have the same effect on your body, though it will often be the case for things that are structurally similar. Um, and things that are structurally similar do often also have similar impacts in your body, but not always. Yeah. So um, with respect to stimulants, mm-hmm. um, caffeine, nicotine, and amphetamine are all like structurally quite dissimilar. Mm. So like they they have stimulatory, net stimulatory effects in the body, but 
Um, they have slightly different mechanisms of action, and they are just shaped kind of dissimilarly. Mm -hmm. So they're largely metabolized by different enzymes. Um, and specifically, as it relates to nicotine and caffeine, um, there may be no effect, or it might actually be the opposite of what Connor was asking about. Um, so it may be that, that nicotine actually increases the clearance rate of caffeine, so increases the rate that it's metabolized rather mm. than slowing it down. So caffeine is primarily metabolized by an enzyme. There are multiple steps to how it's metabolized, but like kind of the most important rate limiting step um, is carried out by an enzyme called cytochrome P450-1A2. So when people talk about being a fast versus slow metabolizer of caffeine, and if you read research on that, um, that's generally what they're talking about. They're, mm. they're looking at allele variants of the CYP1A2 gene, which is what codes for this enzyme. Um, and just like a particular allele codes for a version of the enzyme that breaks down caffeine faster than the other version of the allele. Right. Um, and so... If nicotine was also primarily metabolized by CYP1A2, then you might expect there to be some competitive inhibition. So both of them kind of competing for the same enzyme, and so both of them being ingested together, um, slowing down the clearance rate for both. Mm -hmm. But uh, that is not the case. So mm -hmm. nicotine is primarily metabolized by two other members of the cytochrome P450 superfamily of enzymes, uh, CYP2A6 and C CYP2B6, um, and a couple others, but those are those are the two biggies. Um, so yeah, they're they're not going to interfere with each other by competing for the same enzymes. Nice. Uh, however, nicotine, like I said, may actually um, instead of like slowing down the clearance rate of caffeine, maybe speed it up. And the reason I say may is nicotine may be an inducer of the CYP1A2 enzyme, meaning that it essentially either incre increases the levels of that enzyme or increases how fast that enzyme works. So it would break down caffeine faster. Hmm. Um, and the reason I say maybe is that's still somewhat controversial. And um, essentially, so cigarette smoking, uh, is, like the act of smoking cigarettes definitely induces the CYP1A2 hmm. uh, enzyme like it it speeds up how quickly it works okay um but it's not entirely clear whether that's due to nicotine itself uh -huh. or due to some of the other combustion products uh -huh. of smoking yeah and i think the way the research is currently leaning is that nicotine per se is not the inducer but it's rather the con the combustion products of smoking i see but i think that's still somewhat controversial like i don't think it's fully settled mm -hmm. um so so probably caffeine and nicotine have no effect on the me metabolism rates of each other Got but it. If there is an effect, it may it may be that nicotine speeds up how quickly caffeine is metabolized. Like I said, it is probably more the combustion products than the nicotine itself. Um, but yeah, so like if you've ever heard, for instance, that grapefruit juice increases the half-life of caffeine, it's like a similar type of effect, but in reverse. So there's a flavone in grapefruit called naringenin that inhibits the CYP1A2 enzyme. So if you inhibit it, you slow down how quickly caffeine is metabolized so it stays in your system longer. It's mm -hmm. so like inducing the enzyme is the same effect, but just in reverse. Like it, it speeds mm -hmm. it up. 
Um, I actually had never heard that before. That's interesting. Oh, huh. That is interesting. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think you're not, you're not quite enough of a stimulant junkie, maybe. Like, mm-hmm. fo- folks who get, like, really in, espe- really into especially, like, pre-workout. Yeah. Um, oftentimes... They're like, ah, oh, man, I don't necessarily want to lose, like, I don't necessarily want to use more caffeine and, like, burn out my tolerance, but, like, I just want it to stay in my system longer. So, like, I'm going to take my pre-workout and I'm also going to, like, drink some grapefruit juice to extend the effects of caffeine. That also, this this is, like, an old school one. Um, that was one of the, like, I think gym culture found out about that from diet culture because that was one of the things in, like, the grapefruit diet. Oh, God. Um, yeah. Because they're like, oh, yeah, like drink your morning coffee, just black, don't add extra uh-huh. cream or sugar to it, and then eat that grapefruit. And guess what? That's going to give you more energy throughout the day. So you don't and, have to eat. And ex- yeah, Jesus. and extend the appetite suppressant effects, effects of the caffeine because you're getting the, um, you're extending the half life of the caffeine with the Yikes. grapefruit. Uh, anyway, so yeah, th- that's just like, that's a that's a tidbit that I think may have been more known ten years ago. Like that's interesting when the grapefruit diet had previously been more popular. But yeah, so <laughs> grapefruit diet was popular like thirty years ago, Greg. Yeah, yeah, but but I'm saying like there's like a cultural memory of it. Like people did it in the '90s, sure. And so okay, folks still remember it in the aughts, remember it a little bit less in the teens, and now remember it even less in the twenties. You know. Fair enough. There's there's a half life for how long it takes people to forget the effects okay. of grapefruit on caffeine's right. half life. Uh, Very good. So, like this, like the the same general principle applies to other stuff as well. Yeah. So, like a lot of drugs, um, will kind of say on the packaging, or like your doctor or pharmacist may tell you, like, uh, don't consume this with cruciferous vegetables or grilled meats or <laughs> licorice. And it's for that reason. So CYP1A2 is involved in the metabolism of a lot of stuff. And in particular, a lot of drugs. Hardworking. And uh, so cruciferous vegetables and grilled meats are CYP1A2 inducers. Whereas licorice is like a crazy strong CYP1A2 inhibitor. Um, Hmm. All of which is to say that the, the inhibitor bit is like, if you're if you're on the tip of just drinking grapefruit juice to extend the effects of caffeine, if you really want to extend the effects of caffeine, eat some licorice instead. Um, but yeah, so that's because like they they mess up um, like yeah. dosing guidelines and assumed half lives of drugs you may be taking Makes just sense. because of their effects on that enzyme. So um, yeah, TLDR is that nicotine. Probably doesn't have much of an effect on the half-life of caffeine. Mm. Caffeine almost certainly doesn't have much of an effect on the half-life of nicotine. But if there is an effect, it might be that nicotine actually makes the half-life of caffeine shorter rather than longer. Because um, they don't use the same enzyme mm-hmm. and the the uh, facilitating versus like um, inhibiting effects of one on the other. As for other stimulants... Or just anything else where you have any questions of this sort, um, you just need to do some reading for yourself. And what I've tried to do in this answer is give you a bit of a framework for knowing some of the things to look at to start answering those questions. So basically look into what, like how a particular thing is metabolized if you're 
interested in how something else affects the metabolism of that thing, look to see if that other thing is competing for the same enzyme or if it uh, induces or inhibits the effect of that enzyme. And then if you're interested in adding a third thing into the mix, now you have a matrix of like, how are <laughs> all of these things metabolized and do any of these things have impact on any of the enzymes metabolized in or involved in metabolizing any of them? You add a fourth thing into the mix. The, the oh, no. complexity increases geometrically. There, which, are, there are people whose job it is to know these things. So it's, yes, and they're called pharmacists. Exactly. Um, and not only is it their job to know to know these things, but like it's complex enough that even they often aren't expected to actually know these things. Like they. Mm. Right. You they can't have, memorize every possible permutation. They have software. Yeah. Where you put in everything someone's taking and yeah. <laughs> it, it hits them with all of those interactions that. Nice. Again, there, there are too many for like anyone to keep in their right. mind. Um, I bet you could. I no, I I absolutely couldn't. Um, I like even even for this, like I knew the thing about licorice and uh, cruciferous vegetables and grilled meats. I couldn't remember which ones were inhibitors, which ones were inducers. Like, uh, and I I didn't know about the bit about uh, potentially nicotine or more likely the combustion products of cigarettes. Like, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of this stuff. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, so ask a pharmacist so they can plug it into their software yeah ask, ask a pharmacist who may know and they probably won't know but they have software that could tell them yeah um or if you're curious just really go down a fucking rabbit hole of uh yeah make a bunch of charts of of reading about rate limiting yeah. enzymes lines between everything yes but uh just as a general principle you should not assume that taking one stimulant will affect the half-life of others right it, it may They're different it may make it longer. It may not affect it. It may make it shorter. It really just depends on how each of those is metabolized. We have another question from John in the Facebook group. How much can BMR vary between individuals? Can the term fast metabolism be true? For example, could a lightweight individual with moderate activity possibly have a higher BMR than someone of the same size and activity? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I wrote an article for the Macro Factor website that will be linked in the show notes. The title was, Do People Really Have, quote, Fast Metabolisms or, quote, Slow Metabolisms? And uh, the answer to the question posed in the article and the answer to John's question is an unequivocal yes. So um, the way I went about answering that question in the article is... Like there, there is this idea that a lot of people have, and I, and I in the article I kind of dig into where I think this idea may have come from, but people have this idea that uh, the idea, like the concept of people having fast or slow metabolisms, is just like bullshit mm -hmm. and something that that someone would just say if they're trying to get like come up with an excuse for why they can't lose weight or can't gain weight, right? Um, but but actually. It all just comes down to body size and body composition, and no one actually has a slow metabolism. And uh, if you think you do, it's just because you're um, misestimating how much you eat and blah, blah, blah. Like, that's, mm -hmm. that's a really common idea people have. Mm -hmm. But when you actually dig into the research, you find that, no, like, th there is 
a ton of variability there. And so the way I, I went about answering that question in the article is essentially just looking at the accuracy and um, individual level variability in in the accuracy of BMR prediction equations. Mm-hmm. Because essentially what those are, the whole point of them is you, you actually measure someone's BMR, usually using uh, indirect calorimetry, like looking at gas exchange when people are in, are in a rested state, and you measure a bunch of things about them, like height, weight, age, sex, whatever, sometimes body composition, um, you know, various various components of body composition, maybe throw some circumference measurements in there. Um, but essentially, you're, you're trying, and, and then you develop a multiple regression equation to say, once we account for these differences, like once we essentially to be able to compare apples to apples, like four people of a particular body composition, yeah. body size, activity level, sex, age, whatever, mm-hmm. um, what would we predict their BMR to be? Mm-hmm. And then you plot those predictions against their actual BMRs. And you can look to see how well your your equation is performing and just how much spread there is of those errors from the predictions. Um, and what you tend to see is that uh, like confidence intervals for those like individual level errors, essentially saying for two people of the same size, same activity level, same body composition, whatever, um, how much faster or slower might their BMR be from what we would predict it to be given all of the variables that go into this equation. Mm -hmm. And what you tend to see is that the confidence intervals there tend to cover a range of around 800 calories. Um, So in other words, if you quote unquote should have a BMR of 1500 calories, given your age, sex, size, activity levels, body comp, whatever, there's about a two-thirds chance that your actual BMR is somewhere between 1,300 and 1,700, mm-hmm. and about a 95% chance that it's somewhere between 1,100 and 1,900, mm-hmm. and that will be roughly normally distributed. So there will be more small errors than like super large errors, but also when we're talking about 95% of individuals, we're not even talking about outliers. Essentially, if you had 100 people in a room and they all had had the same activity levels, same body comp, they all weighed the exact same. Um and and they were all like quote unquote supposed to have a BMR of 1500 calories. There would be two to three people who who would have BMRs of 1100 or less and two or three people who would have BMRs of 1900 or more. So, you know, we're we're not even talking about one in 10,000 type of deals just yeah, Normal variability. People who you're likely to find in a room of thirty to a hundred people, um, and yeah, so so most people don't have like super fast or super slow metabolisms, but it's not uncommon for people to have BMRs that you think would be similar that could vary by up to eight hundred calories, which mm-hmm. is a pretty big difference. Significant, yeah. Um, and going a level deeper. Ooh, fun fact. What I really enjoyed learning as I was researching for that article, because like I, I saw those findings and I was like, well, th- this is pretty surprising. Mm-hmm. Like I, I mean, it wasn't surprising because like I had known about the relative accuracy of BMR equations for a while, but I, 
I like as I started thinking about it more, I'm like, I don't know why this is. Mm-hmm. You know, I I don't know what the explanation for this thing is. And so I I did some more some more reading, and uh, it seems like the primary contributor to having a quote unquote fast or quote unquote slow metabolism is relative organ size. Yeah, which is kind of wild. It is wild. So your your vital organs mm-hmm. comprise well, I mean. I guess like your internal organs, because like your muscles and like skin, like those are vital organs. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying, though? We like, know what you're saying. Your livers, your kidney, your brains, right. lungs, whatever. Brains? Plural? Brain. Okay. Uh, well, left brain, right brain. You got two of them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, your your brain, liver, kidneys, heart, lungs, whatever, they comprise a relatively small percentage of your total body mass, mm-hmm. but they account for like three quarters of your basal metabolic rate yeah your your fat tissue and your muscle tissue are are far and away the two largest and bone those are far and away the three largest contributors to total body mass Mm -hmm. but they are all not particularly metabolically active tissues at rest muscle can be super metabolically active during exercise Mm -hmm. but at rest None of those tissues are burning many calories at mm-hmm. all. So, um, yeah, mo- most of your BMR is just driven by things like your kidneys and liver and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just, is it just like a larger organ? Like if your brain is bigger or your liver is bigger, it's going to... Yes. Okay. So th- there's also research on the uh, relative tissue-specific metabolic rates of those organs, mm-hmm. which tend to decrease a little bit with age and can also within a particular age bucket vary between individuals. But that variability isn't as large as just the variability in size. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of just because it can't be, you know, mm-hmm. like your, your heart's gotta be hearting, you know, like if it's not, <laughs> if it's not really yeah. pumping that blood, like something that's not going to be good for you. Happening. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, like they're, they're all just like pretty, pretty freaking metabolically active all the time mm-hmm. for everyone there is some variability but not quite as much but yeah like in general bigger people tend to have larger organs but it's nowhere close to a one-to-one relationship um the the tightest relationship is with heart size and body size but even there mm-hmm. you're dealing with like a correlation coefficient like an r value of around 0.7 mm-hmm. which means that body size only explains about half of the variability in heart size. The um, impact of uh, like the correlation between body size and like kidney size or liver size or the size of like pretty much any other organ Mm -hmm. is considerably lower. But uh, you probably haven't had a full body MRI to estimate the volume and therefore the mass of all of your internal organs, I would assume. And so what BMR equations do is... They tacitly assume that all of the metabolically active tissues that are contributing to basal metabolic rate scale one to one with body size. Like body size is a proxy for Mm. the size of all of the things in your body that are contributing to basal metabolic rate. And body size is a pretty good predictor of fat mass. It's a pretty good predictor of muscle mass. It's a pretty good predictor of bone mass. 
none of which are all particularly yeah. metabolically yeah. active. But, but then, organs are a wild card. Yeah, then the tissues that are contributing the most to your metabolic rate aren't as strongly associated with huh. body size. Chaotic, I love them. All of which means, yeah, like two people of the same size could have very different BMRs. Like one could have a quote-unquote fast metabolism, mm -hmm. one could have a quote-unquote slow metabolism. Mm -hmm. And if you knew that one of them had a fast or a slow metabolism... You can make predictions about their organ sizes from that information, which is like kind of creepy. <laughs> kind of creep somebody I mean, out, yeah. Like if, you know, if, if a BMR equation says that someone should have a BMR of 1,300 calories and, and you get you get a mask on them, you know, you, you yeah. do some gas exchange, you measure their BMR, and instead of 1,300, it comes out at 1,800 you could be, you could be like, I bet that person has particularly large kidneys for their overall body size, or mm. like a particularly large liver. Mm -hmm. um, Interesting. So yeah, uh, I hope no budding Han Hannibal Lecters are listening to this. But if mm. there are any, no, well, don't you, give them any well, advice. I mean, whatever. I, this can't be. We can't be held liable for this. But look, if you want to enjoy someone's liver with some fava beans and a nice glass of Chianti, maybe try to get a job in a metabolism lab and <laughs> Jesus Christ. look for people whose BMRs are way higher. Playing the long game. You think they should be. Oh, my God. Um, anyway, TLDR, to answer John's question, yes. Um, BMRs can vary considerably between people, yeah. even people who are the same size, similar body comp. Mm -hmm. And that seems to primarily be related to relative organ sizes. Yeah. That is such a fun fact. It's really good. I think it's really good for people to know, too, because you can't control the size of your organs. Like, if somebody has a way higher BMR and they're because they have big-ass organs and they're trying to shame you, being like, oh, well, you're just not as good as me because your BMR is, is lower. It's like, no. You just have freakishly large organs. Calm down, Cassandra. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone out here is doing hypertrophy training for their kidneys. And if you're doing hypertrophy... That's bad. Yeah, that's bad. And if you're doing hypertrophy training for your liver, the, no. it's probably doing more harm than good. Right. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah. Okay, let's go to the next question. From Angela. Uh, Angela asks, is it possible to taper down activity levels steps without reducing calories if so what would be a step-by-step -step way to do that i'm currently at 25k plus and this won't be sustainable soon yeah um it's a I, lot of steps i can imagine that does that does sound like a lot of steps take a long time to get them in uh but yeah so to to answer your question angela um is it possible to taper down your activity levels without reducing calories. Um, I assume there is a tacit assumption in this question that is, can you reduce calories without affecting relative energy balance? Like if you're trying to be in a particularly sized surplus or deficit or stay at maintenance, can you be less active, keep eating the same amount of calories mm -hmm. and stay in the same relative energy balance? I, I assume that that is like an underlying assumption here. Uh -huh. Um, and so to, to answer that question, I'd say maybe to some degree, especially given how active you currently are. So one of the things we've talked about on the podcast several times before is the constrained energy expenditure model from, from Ponser and colleagues. Um, basically, the idea is that there is not a one-to-one -one relationship between how much energy you burn 
through physical activity and how much your total daily energy expenditure increases by for each increment of additional physical activity. So essentially, if you're very, very sedentary and you start exercising enough to burn an extra 200 calories per day, your total daily energy expenditure will probably go up by around 200 calories per day. Mm -hmm. Like there's a roughly linear relationship between exercise energy expenditure and increases in total energy expenditure as you go from being sedentary to moderately active. But if you're already very active, say you're getting in 22,000 steps a day and you become more active, say you start getting in 25,000 steps per day, um, just in theory, those extra 3,000 steps, what's that? Probably, mm, what's 3,000 steps? That's probably about a mile, give or take. Probably a little more than a yeah. mile. Whatever. Let's let's just say you're walking another mile. Okay. Um, and you're already that active. Uh, for an average-sized person walking a mile, that level of activity should burn about 100 calories for active energy expenditure. But if you're already that active, it will probably increase your total energy expenditure for the day by less than 100 calories. Um, and if you're super, super active, the, the net increase might only be like 30 calories or something. Mm -hmm. So um, since you are already so active... If you stepped back from 25,000 steps per day to 20,000 steps per day, say, the total energy that you're burning through activity, like it, it would be less than this. But theoretically, let's just say it goes down 500 calories per day. You probably wouldn't have to reduce your energy intake by 500 calories per day because your total daily energy expenditure probably wouldn't go down by 500 calories per day. Might only go down by 200, so you would still need to reduce your energy intake, but only by about 200. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's the first part of the answer to that question. Um, essentially, the degree to which you would need to reduce your energy intake would be disproportionately low relative to the amount you reduced your activity levels because you're already so active. Um, that would be my, th that's what I would anticipate. Um, but, uh, the next kind of level to this answer is that you probably will need to reduce your energy intake, but, uh, if you do, it probably won't actually affect your perceptions very much. Um, so I, I think a concern people have is they they get really active and let's say they're they're maintaining their weight on 3000 calories a day mm -hmm. and they they feel okay and sated but like they never feel stuffed they never feel like that hungry and they they like how they feel when they're eating 3000 calories a day um and they're like ah oh, man but if if i become less active i might have to go down to 2,500 calories a day. And I know that if I was eating 2,500 calories a day now, I would feel hungry mm -hmm. and lethargic and not sated. Therefore, that concerns me and I would like to become less active and still be able to eat 3,000 calories a day. Mm -hmm. But um, appetite regulation and, and hunger perception are closely linked to and coupled with activity levels above a certain threshold of activity, which is to say, uh, and, and this is like conceptually similar to the constrained energy model where 
it's a nonlinear relationship mm-hmm. and and what happens with sedentary folks and moderately active folks and super active folks it's it's not the same at all activity right. levels so people who are somewhere between moderately active and very active um there's there's good coupling between hunger perceptions and and appetite regulation signals and energy expenditure so if you are currently maintaining your weight on 3000 calories a day and you're super active and you you become less active but you're still quite active and now you're only burning 2500 calories per day and so you need to eat 2500 calories per day to maintain weight eating 2500 calories with that lower activity level will feel about the same as eating 3000 calories with the much higher activity levels Mm -hmm. because energy expenditure and appetite are, are well coupled if you are at least moderately active where that changes is if someone is moderately active and then they become quite sedentary. So for folks who are quite sedentary, there is, a decoupling between appetite perception and hunger regulation and energy expenditure such that you know let's let's say now you're moderately active you're eating 2500 calories per day you're maintaining weight you still feel pretty okay and you you just from that point become super sedentary and so now instead of burning 2500 calories per day you're only burning 2000 calories per day it's not like when you step down from 3000 to 2500 you're you're when you step down from 2500 to 2000 you no longer feel as sated um you might still feel hungry and lethargic throughout the day you're only burning 2000 calories per day but your appetite cues and your hunger cues are trying to tell you to eat maybe 2200 2300 calories per day so um, you know, stepping down from 2,500 to 2,000 and still trying to do that to maintain weight would lead to different perceptions and, and make it like it, it would be more challenging to make that reduction mm-hmm. than from the 3,000 to 2,500. Um, all of which is to say, uh, Angela, if you're, <laughs> I, I totally understand that you don't want to keep walking 25,000 steps a day. That is a shitload of steps. Um, if you wanted to dial that back considerably, like let's say to 15,000, 10,000, um, you will, you will probably need to reduce how much you're eating as you do that. Um, but that reduction, like it, it's probably not going to hurt. Like you're, Hmm. you're going to feel about the same with your reduced calories as you currently feel with how much you're currently eating Mm -hmm. because you should still stay in the activity range where you have strong coupling between hunger perceptions, appetite cues, and energy expenditure. So as your energy expenditure goes down, you'll need to eat less, but you'll also naturally want to eat less, and eating a little bit less won't make you feel worse. Mm -hmm. But if you went from 25,000 steps a day to 2,500 steps per day, and you reduced your energy intake down to your new level of energy expenditure at only 2,500 steps per day, that would probably feel quite bad because now you're entering sedentary territory Mm -hmm. where you don't have that strong coupling between appetite perception and energy expenditure anymore. All right, moving over to Reddit, uh, the most upvoted uh, comment on on the Q&A post. 
And this got more upvotes than any comment got liked in the Facebook group as well. Most popular thing across either community was from Pokin Pinoy, uh, just saying, all we like Lindsay. Um, Lindsay, the, the people have spoken. <laughs> um, so how will you answer for your crimes abandoning the crimes? audience at this time? Well, I talked, I talked about it at the beginning. I feel like I have a good reason. And we have a plan for people to take care of the audience moving forward. Um, I feel like no one is more heartbroken about this than my dad. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> Which honestly makes me a little sad. He loved the podcast so much while I was on it. I don't think he's going to keep listening, honestly. But um, I'll just say... It's very nice that this was the most upvoted comment, and I, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, I'm very grateful for the support that I've received, but you specifically asked people if they had any questions for me, and there were none. That is true. That is true. <laughs> so, like, I don't have anything happening here. There's, there's nothing for me to do here other than just kind of go back and forth with you, which I've been happy to do, but I think uh, the audience will get more out of people who can answer these questions in a similar level of depth that you can. Um, so I guess that's my answer to the alleged crimes. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fair enough. Uh, what you did mention though about Rick, um, Rick, since, since this will be the last episode of the podcast you ever listened to, <laughs> Um, just, just wanted to give you a quick shout out, shout out Rick Rubel, uh, best father-in-law a guy could ask for, uh, you, you raised a heck of a woman and go bucks. Okay. Um, let's, let's, let's move on to okay. the first actual question yeah. from Reddit. I'll read this question. How do you incorporate plyometrics and explosive training for jump height? For example, basketball athletes in the off season. Is it a separate block from hypertrophy and strength, a separate day in hypertrophy and strength blocks, or something else? Yeah, it's it's hard to just give like a flat blanket answer to this question because it's going to depend on several things. One is what sort of sport training are they currently doing? So the question says basketball athletes in the off season, but Oftentimes, there's not really an off season. Um, mm. You know, you go straight from school ball to AAU, and then, you know, maybe you have like an off season that you just need to recover for like a month before the next season starts back up. So, yeah, you know, you might consider one of those your off season, but you're still doing some stuff. Or if you do have an off season, you're still like going to camps. There, there's summer ball. Like there's there's practices going on. Is this for um, professional athletes? Um, You're talking no. about like high schoolers. Well, like, yeah, I mean, but I'm just playing the numbers here. There's <laughs> You don't think this guy on Reddit is trading professional athletes? I strongly assume they aren't. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if you're talking about training athletes and you're a coach, you're typically talking about training high school athletes. That, that's the bread and butter of the of the athletic you're training right. industry. Um. But yeah, I mean, oftentimes there's not a true off season like like basketball players are typically playing ball year round. Um, and whether or not that's in some sort of competitive league, they're at least getting to the gym, working on some skills, playing pickup ball, 
Um, and, and that's going to be relevant for what sort of plyometric training they can do and benefit from because basketball is a very plyometric sport. Like you're hitting jump shots, you're jumping for rebounds, you're jumping to try to block people. Um, and like hard, productive plyometrics are kind of tough on your joints, kind of tough on your tendons, like totally safe, totally fine to do, but um, maybe not the best to do super intensely if they're also still playing like a fair bit of ball, which, you know, again, like maybe they're they're on the youth circuit and basically playing year round or they just love the game. And so the season's over, but they're still getting out and playing. So uh, it, it's going to depend on how much of that they're doing, because that's going to determine how much like just directed plyometric loading they can handle and and benefit from and adapt positively to. Um, another relevant question is just what else they need to work on in their training. So um, one of the things we've talked about on the podcast quite a few times before is the idea of the interference effect with concurrent training um, and how specifically with regards to strength and hypertrophy, concerns of the interference effect are probably a little overblown. So if, if this is your first time encountering those terms, it's the idea that doing aerobic training and uh, like strength training or resistance training in tandem, the, the interference effect is the idea that doing that will lead to reductions in anaerobic outcomes like hypertrophy, strength gains, power output um, versus only doing resistance training. Um, and so that, that, concern is mostly overblown as it relates to strength and hypertrophy. Like if doing some, some cardio, like some running negatively impacts muscle growth and strength gains, the impact is probably relatively small, but the interference effect with concurrent training is quite large when it comes to power based outcomes. So plyometrics, like you're, you're trying to increase jump height, you're trying to increase power output, if someone in the last season was like a skilled player, but they're getting gassed in the third quarter. And so a big focus of the off season is trying to build up that gas tank so they can actually like really, really go at it for like 28 to 36 minutes a game or whatever. Um, you're probably not going to get quite as much out of the plyometrics you do because you're also really focusing on aerobic conditioning in the yeah. off season. Mm -hmm. Um, or uh, kind of on the flip side, you might have a player who is already plenty strong and, and quite muscular, but not particularly explosive. And so maybe for a lot of your ba your basketball athletes, you're like, oh, man, how am I going to balance the plyos I want them to do with heavy squats, heavy split squats, heavy step ups, whatever, like the stuff I need to do to help them build the muscle and strength base but with this athlete, they're plenty muscular. They're plenty strong already. We don't need to do that much heavy resistance training. Maybe we can have them do more plyos because that's, you know, helping address the thing where they currently suffer. So, you know, th those are some of the questions you need to ask yourself. Just how, how much plyometric sport specific stuff are they already doing? And what other demands, like whatever, what other physical conditioning demands are you trying to meet in the off season? And would that facilitate plyos or would that work against it? So, you know, th th those are just kind of things in the initial calculus. Um, oftentimes, though, 
the best option and, you know, here again, I'm assuming you're training high school kids who might be coming to you three, maybe four times a week, maybe two times a week, mm-hmm. probably not every day. Um, oftentimes, just given the the constraints of how that coaching relationship tends to work, the best way to set it up is you just do plyos before their other training. Yeah. And if they're coming three times a week, you probably don't want to have three hard plyo workouts a week. But generally, in one or two of those sessions, you just do the plyos at the start of the session. Um, you, you, they need to be done when the athlete is fresh and able to give it their all. Like, mm-hmm. they're not already pre-fatigued. Um, and on the flip side, and and thankfully, um, doing, like, a tough plyo workout might reduce how much people can lift on subsequent exercises they do. But if if they do, the impact probably won't be particularly large. And sometimes you even see like a facilitation effect. Like you, you really get the nervous system like fired up and, and going good with mm-hmm. some plyos. And then you get them under a bar and they lift better than they would have mm-hmm. just after a standard warm up. So, um, yeah, usually if you're going to do plyos with other things, you typically want them to be first. Oftentimes, just because you're not seeing the athlete every day, you're going to need to do them with other things. So just warm up, plyos, get onto the other stuff. Um, So yeah, just do it at the start of a workout when you would be doing other stuff. And those two questions I posed to start with, what does their sport-specific training look like and what else do they need to work on, that's going to influence the type, the amount, and the intensity of the plyos that they're doing at the start of their session. So you know, if if they're not doing that much conditioning work, they're not doing that much kind of like plyometric sports specific training, um, they can maybe do more plyos at the start of the workout versus if uh, I mean, whatever, like if, if you've been coaching, like you, you, you know where I'm getting out with this, um, <laughs> you know, if if they need to do more plyos and can benefit from more plyos, they're still doing it at the start of the workout. You're, it's just higher intensity, maybe higher volume. If they're, you know, doing a lot of sports specific training, a lot of plyometric stuff, they're doing a lot of conditioning work and you're still working in plyos, just less intense plyos, lower volume of them. Either way, it's going at the start of the workout that tends to get the job done. Um, The two uh, uh, like pieces of advice and like the two mistakes that I would recommend looking out for to make sure you avoid is like a... (laughs) A classic like rookie coach move is to have is to put plyos on an off day mm-hmm. um, where it's like, hey, look, like we're we're doing some like hard conditioning work. We're really getting it. We're really getting it after it in the weight room. We're doing some heavy training. We're doing some high volume hypertrophy training um, and plyos. Like that's that's just jumping, you know, like if you do a really tough, really intense plyometric workout, like your knees might be a little bit sore the next day, potentially, or that could suggest that you overdid it a little bit. But like, you know, you might have like a little joint soreness, but you're not going to get like crazy delayed onset mm-hmm. muscle soreness mm-hmm. from it. Um, it feels like it should just be easier than most other training you're doing. Um, and so a mistake a lot of rookie coaches make is they're just like, hey, the, the Plyos aren't as hard as squats. And like we're trying to get a lot done in this offseason. So like when when you come to me, you're gonna do, you know, the the tough stuff. Yeah. And then on your own time, like I'm gonna write you a plyometric, like a plyometrics workout, and you're gonna do that on your off days. 
don't fucking do that. Like that's that's a bad plan. Um because one, that's really intense tendon and joint loading. Yeah. When you're hopefully wanting those tissues to recover. Right. And especially if you're dealing with youth athletes, like man, a lot of a lot of a lot of kids are like 17, 18, and like their knees and ankles are already in bad shape just from yeah. like specializing in a sport too young, playing AAU year round. Like it's it's bad news. Like if they have off days, like really encourage them to rest and relax. Yeah. Um, and plyos are, are one of the worst things you could do on an off day. Oh no. Because that I is I feel like this is super common though. Uh it's it's not uncommon. Yeah. Yeah. Um but yeah, don't don't do that. Don't do that. That's bad. Um and the other thing is you're saying that someone's doing plyos, but they're doing cardio that involves jumping. Mm-hmm. Um so like plyometric training the the classic plyometrics are depth jumps. So, mm. you know, d- depending on how explosive someone is, depending how strong they are, you know, it, they might just be jumping down, like stepping down from like a four inch platform. Maybe it's a, a foot tall platform. Um, some like hyper explosive, uh, like jumping athletes, like like high jumpers or triple jumpers or um like throwers are also like crazy explosive shot yeah. discus throwers. Sometimes you see like really high depth jumps from some of those athletes. You generally don't need to go crazy on the height for, um, for like younger, like less elite athletes, but you know, essentially you're stepping down off of something, minimizing ground contact, jumping back up as high as you can. Um, and you know, you're not just dropping, gradually absorbing the contact squatting down jumping up like it's it it plyo should be violent like that because you're you're trying because you're trying to generate as much power in the shortest period of time as possible like Mm -hmm. that's that is the name of the game Mm -hmm. for uh like increasing jump height or even just like increasing on court explosiveness like it's not just how much power can you gradually wind up to it's how much power can you create and how quickly can you create it and especially absorb force and then kind of retransmit like that's that's what you're doing. It should be intense. It should be violent. Um, if someone is doing a set of 20, it's not plyometric anymore. Like you you have to do it fresh and you have to be able to give it your all. So, yeah, plyos on off days. No bueno. Um doing just a bunch of low intensity jumps and because it's jumps you're calling it plyos that's not even plyos at that point it's cardio um so yeah those are two of the most common mistakes to avoid but yeah just to go back to the answer to the question typically you just do it before your other training um with the type and amount dictated by the level of the athlete and what other training they're doing and what else you're trying to work on during the off season okay um, and I forgot to shout out the person who asked that question. The Reddit username was Truger. Our next question is from No Performer eight one three three on Reddit. It just feels so silly reading out those names. It's fine, whatever. Okay. Here's the question. I was listening to Arnold talk about getting older and how he can't or won't do certain stuff. One of those being that he doesn't seem to brace too heavily because of the stress it puts on your body. My question is this. 
Is there any research showing damage to the blood vessels or whatnot in the longer term due to the blood pressure increase because of bracing or Valsalva maneuver? Mm, That's a good question. And in terms of direct research, no, not really. So ideally, you would have... I don't know, like a 30 year study on powerlifters um, compared to uh, controls that are matched in terms of demographics and maybe even do resistance training, but nothing involving the Valsalva maneuver, like really heavy bracing. And uh, you would try to control for confounding variables as good as possible and then look to see like vascular health, how it progresses over time and where they start, where they ended up in 20, 30 years. Like that's that's what you would love. That study does not exist. I'd be surprised if it ever exists. Um, so yeah, there's no direct research on that question as far as I'm aware. Um, one thing I would note is that there is a difference between things that would negatively influence vascular health and things that maybe would exacerbate problems if you already have poor vascular health. So, you know, for for instance, if you ha- if you have some sort of condition that is exacerbated by blood pressure spikes, one of the common pieces of advice that your doctor will probably give you is to avoid the Valsalva maneuver mm-hmm. and they are right. Don't do that. Like because that does <laughs> yeah. that does quickly spike your blood pressure and so if you have some sort of condition that is sensitive to elevations in blood pressure, that's bad. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily therefore mean that the Valsalva maneuver and spiking your blood pressure like that would lead to the deleterious changes that would then at some point make it dangerous to do the Valsalva maneuver, like if that makes sense. It's it's the it's this it's a similar idea of like, you know, if you um if you like do squats, like that's fine. Like it's good for you. It's not going to like mess up your knees or anything. But like if you uh, just ruptured your patellar tendon and had it reattached, maybe you shouldn't do heavy squats, you know? Yeah. Like the fact that doing heavy squats would negatively impact your recovery there doesn't therefore <laughs> mean that heavy squats will cause you to rupture your patellar tendon. You yes. know what I mean? Like that, that general principle. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, like there are absolutely conditions that uh, like older lifters may experience that would be exacerbated by the blood pressure spikes associated with the Valsalva maneuver. But that means that doing the Valsalva maneuver is dangerous for those folks. It doesn't necessarily mean it's dangerous in general. Like that's that's what I'm saying. Um, but what I will also say is there is indirect research that is maybe relevant, maybe not, but I feel like in the interest of trying to answer this question, I should mention it. Um, so there, there's epidemiological work on occupational heavy lifting. And so that is typically you're picking things up that are somewhere between 10 and 50 pounds multiple times per day every day. Um, so it's not, you know, it's it's less about doing 500 pound deadlifts for like 10 total reps twice a week and more about doing 50 pound deadlifts 500 times a day for 40 years, you know, um, like it's, it's, those are two very different things. Yes. Um, but within the context of occupational heavy lifting, there is some research suggesting that there might be increased rates of ischemic heart disease and all cause mortality. 
Um, however, it's hard to know if that's due to confounders potentially. So, you know, oftentimes you're comparing, um, I mean, you're, you're often comparing people who have like manual labor, blue collar jobs mm -hmm. who might be of generally lower socioeconomic status who may have like worse access to the medical system. Um, you know, just dealing with all of the other confounders that are generally associated with socioeconomic status. Right. And so, mm, and, and, you know, with good epidemiological research, you try to statistically adjust for as many confounders as possible, but can you do it completely always? Uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe not. Um, so, yeah, like there's it, it's hard to know if that finding is due to confounders or due to the occupational lifting itself. And it is also so hard to know or even like come up with a good faith guess at whether those findings would generalize to lifting because lifting a 50 pound box 500 times a day and lifting 500 pounds a total of 20 times a week. Those are, those are just radically different things. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, like there's some indirect epidemiological research on epi on occupational heavy lifting that may suggest that lifting that maybe involves bracing a long time could maybe like negatively influence your risk of ischemic heart disease and all cause mortality um, is that causal? Who knows? Does that apply to lifting? Who knows? But that's the closest and most relevant research we have, which isn't particularly close, isn't particularly relevant, but that is the closest I can get to answering that question. Okay, I think we have just one or two more. This next one is from Tampa01. How much isolation work is too much? After doing the main compounds, how many extra sets of forearm, calves, rear delt, side delt, biceps, and core is enough, but not too much? Uh, <laughs> it, there's no way to get yeah. like a one-size-fits-all answer to that question. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's going to come down to like preference, time constraints, ability to recover, and whether or not you're seeing the outcomes you're interested in. Um, like if you, if you want to be a freak, you know, like you, you don't have any time constraints, your life is built around just getting as jacked as possible. And, uh, yeah, that's what you're doing. You know, um, you, it probably wouldn't hurt to do quite a bit of isolation work after your compound exercises. Like there aren't that many, like, um, Tampa called out some like particularly good muscle groups to mention here, like forearms, calves, rear delts, side delts, biceps, core. Like if you're doing a, a diet of just rows, pull-ups, squats, deadlifts, bench press, overhead press, like, you might you're you're going to be getting some some forearm work for grip, but like you're not getting any like wrist extension stuff. You're not getting any um, like finger extensor stuff like for your forearms, and you're getting the the wrist flexor training for your forearms. Where in, insofar as some wrist flexors are also finger flexors, but like yeah, you could work in some wrist curls as well. Like there's there's plenty of stuff for your forearms you could be doing that isn't necessarily being covered by your heavy compounds 
Same thing for your calves. Like your calves are engaged in squats and deadlifts. Um, but, you know, that's not as much as doing direct calf yeah. raises. Rear delts, they're getting some work from your rows. They're not being like directly targeted. Side delts, they're getting some work from your overhead pressing. Could also probably do with some more. Like you, you get the point. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, like you, you have quite a few muscle groups that aren't being directly stressed that much with your heavy compounds. You probably could do quite a bit of um, accessory work for. And there are also other muscles that like you are hitting pretty hard with your compounds, but like maybe certain like heads or regions aren't being addressed with your heavy compounds. So like good example, I forget the researcher's name right off the top of my head, but in like 2018, 2019 or so, there was a paper comparing uh, triceps extension to bench press for triceps growth. And they seemed to cause pretty similar overall triceps growth, but the triceps extensions, I think they were doing skull crushers in that study, were way better at, at growing the long head of the triceps than the bench press was. So, you know, you're probably getting plenty plenty of general work for your triceps if you're just doing pressing exercises and don't do like isolation movements, but yeah, you probably wouldn't hurt if you're trying to absolutely maximize triceps growth to do some isolation work to get the long head. And so like that's that's like broadly generalizable. Same thing would apply to hamstrings like you're getting plenty of hip extension work, probably do some knee flexion work as well. Basically, if you're trying to cover all of your bases and you don't have any other concerns or time constraints, there's there's a lot of compounds you could or there's a lot of isolation work you could be doing. Um but if your goal isn't just to absolutely maximize muscular development and get as jacked as possible and spend, you know, a decent chunk of your free time in the gym, you also don't have to do all of that. And so how much isolation work would be too much for that individual? Fucking any isolation work, you know, like there's none of it you absolutely have to do. So that's kind of the first the first filter, like, what are you trying to accomplish here? And what do you what what would you need to do to accomplish that balanced against how else do you want to be spending your life? Like, mm-hmm. do do you want to invest that time and effort into it? Or would you rather be doing something else? Yeah. Um, the next filter is ability to recover. So um, this is this is I will admit less of something that I can point to a direct reference for and more of just like inexperience and vibes thing but like i think you have local muscular recovery capacity but also like global recovery capacity um so like for instance if you like just as a simple illustration if you never did any lower body training i think you could probably train your upper body harder than if you were doing both upper and lower like Mm -hmm. if if you're pushing both as hard as you can and you're training both upper and lower body Um, there will come a point where if you push your upper body work a little bit harder, you would be unable to recover from it. Whereas if you just dropped leg training entirely, you could bump your upper body training up that little extra notch. Right. Uh, and still be able to recover even though you're, uh, yeah, I mean, you get the point. Like I think there's both local and global recovery capacity. And so, at some point, when you are trying to do more work for those muscles that maybe are a little neglected from your compounds, you might start running into recovery issues that seem 
somewhat counterintuitive where it's like, hey, like I started doing more forearm, calf, rear delt, side delt, and biceps training. And now like I find I'm not recovering quite as well from my squats. Like that doesn't make sense, but like who knows? Maybe it does. <laughs> like <laughs> so there there are potential recovery constraints globally and also with those individual muscles. So even if you're not running into global recovery capacity ability, like you shouldn't do more calf work than your calves can recover from. You know what I mean? Like that pretty simple. Um and then, yeah, are you seeing the outcomes you're interested in or not? Um, and is that related to maybe needing to do more or having issues with recovery and maybe needing to do less? And put all of that together and how much isolation work is too much. It could be any, it could, like, it could be that any is too much. It could be that a ton is too much. It really just depends on all of those things. Um, so, yeah. Tough to tough to give a blanket answer to that question. Just in general, though, for most people, most of the time, if I had to give just a a blanket across the board recommendation for this stuff, mm-hmm. I'd say muscles that aren't targeted like super hard by your um, like your main compounds. And and Tampa, I think, did a really good job of of laying out what most of those would be forearms calves rear delts side delts biceps core i'd potentially toss traps in there as well i'd potentially toss hip flexors very slept on uh surprisingly large muscle and if you're doing a ton of hip extension work anyways eh, may as well do some stuff for your hip flexors i'd maybe throw neck in there i'd maybe throw traps in there you know, you have maybe a dozen muscle groups that you're not like really targeting super hard with the main training you're doing. And I think if you just wanted to cover all bases and like get a good stimulus on them, like very low chance that you're overdoing it. Um, and if you're leaving some gains on the table, you're probably not leaving that many. I'd say try to do two or three relatively challenging sets about twice a week and you should be good to go because most of those muscles will still be getting some work from the compounds you're doing. So, you know, if you're if you're doing, you know, four sets of rows and four sets of pull downs twice a week, you don't also need to do another 16 just direct sets for your biceps uh, over the course of the week. Maybe like six to eight would be plenty. Who knows? Whatever. But yeah, like two, three, four sets once or twice a week for those muscles that are a little bit neglected. That'll get you most of the gains. Shouldn't take all that long. Shouldn't be particularly difficult to recover from. So that doesn't directly answer the question of how much is too much. But like how much would I generally recommend to most people most of the time? Two to four sets once or twice a week for those like pseudo pseudo neglected muscles. That'll that'll get you in pretty good shape. Nice. All right. Uh, last question for this podcast and last question for Lindsay's run of the podcast and in the Facebook group and subreddit I did say that this was your last episode and so if anyone had any questions for you this was their last time and this this was the Lindsay question that came in so I figure in respect for you and for the the person who listened to the assignment we should (laughs) (laughs) we should close on this one okay okay 
Hey guys, I always see Greg putting up a bunch of cooking stuff on Instagram. So this question is primarily for Lindsay, but I suppose you could answer for each other. Um, what's the favorite thing that Greg has ever cooked and the least favorite thing that Greg's ever cooked for you? He did say we could answer for each other. So you could answer what your favorite thing I've ever cooked for you is. That's true. Which is probably like five total things ever. Um, yeah, but it was addressed to you, so you can go first. Man, this is this is tough. Um, I'm looking at your Instagram right now to look back <laughs> through your little stories. I don't put most of what I. I know, I know. You don't do it as much anymore. So, almost everything you cook for me is delicious. There have been. I think most of the things that like stand out in terms of just like, I love this. It's my favorite thing are like kind of the more boring things. Like you made me a pizza a couple weeks ago. That was just like pepperoni and basil, I think, or maybe just basil and tomato. And it was like, it it reminded me why I love to be alive. <laughs> It was so good. Um, and you've made like some really good chicken and rice, like the biryani chicken and rice that we made at in the mountains one time when we were on vacation. Mm, yeah. That was really, really good. Um, the cookies and cream ice cream is one of my favorite things. Um, in terms of like what I, you make me the same thing on my birthday every year. You make me a steak and white pesto pasta. So most of these are just like very simple things that I think are just executed so perfectly. And I love them. Um, when I think of least favorite, like honestly, nothing comes to mind. I feel like you are, you have a much better memory for the things you've made that didn't turn out great than I do. Oh, I have a perfect memory of everything like, I made that didn't turn out. We went to H Mart the other day, and when we were driving home, we were talking about how there was some sort of stock or liquid for making ramen noodles. And you mentioned that you had tried to make ramen noodles like two or three years ago, and they turned out poorly. Um, and I had to like dig through my memory to find that because like i just don't remember um the bad things that you make but you do make some pretty heinous shit for yourself yes um so that's not stuff that you make for me but sometimes you make yourself a plate of food and i'm like that is disgusting i would never eat that and it's mainly just because there's no aesthetics involved when you make yourself food, you love to cut food up small and mash it all together. Yeah. And make a brown mush. Yeah. Um, Cause it, it gets all of the, it, you get all of the flavors in every bite. I don't, I don't like that. <laughs> Sometimes I have to leave the room cause I'm so disgusted. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the difference there is when I'm cooking for you, I'm cooking for someone I love. And when I'm cooking for myself, I just need to eat something. And that's an inconvenience. Yeah. 
that's fair. I mean, you can eat whatever you want, but it's it looks really gross. Um, I'm just I'm just thinking. I'm just gonna list things now. You've made really good general sauce chicken before. I love a fried chicken. Any sort of any sort of fried chicken dish. The Masaman curry you made a couple years ago. Um, Ooh, that was good. I think about that a lot. That was super super good. We should make that again. Um, I think that's all. That's all I got for now. You make me bread all the time too, and you've made me a lot of great breads. Um, focaccia is probably my favorite. When you make a focaccia with some little cherry tomatoes pushed down into it, delicioso. Well, thank you, baby. Um, I wish I would have thought about more since you listed so many things. Um, <laughs> but it said favorite and least favorite, and so I. You know, I, I, we, you know this about me. I approach everything as if I'm taking a standardized test. Yes. Like what is your brain is broken in that way? What is the question asking for, and how can I maximize my chances of getting full marks on this? <laughs> um, so uh, favorite thing, I really like the um, the chicken shawarma that you. Made. Oh yeah. Um, it is very good. It's just an oven roasted chicken shawarma. Yes, but it's very good. I just want to clarify that I'm not putting things on a spit and like doing it old school. But if you did, that would also be very good, I'm sure. Probably. I do not have that technology, though. Um, We could we could get one. That's not necessary. I I wouldn't mind having a spit. We could talk about that later. Okay. Um, And least favorite... That's also tough because you mostly follow recipes. Right. And you follow recipes very well. And most recipes are written competently. Mm-hmm. So nothing is going to come out particularly poorly. Um, I do think... Mm, I forget exactly what it was. It was some sort of like quick bread or something. But you made something... Like you, you've underbaked something fairly significantly one time. Maybe it was a the blueberry buckle. I don't remember. Whatever. I actually still enjoyed it because I do like underbaked baked goods, and mm-hmm. I don't care about food safety. But mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. Like all, all of your stuff comes out good, and that's the only time I can think of that you made something that like maybe didn't turn out great. Mm -hmm. Although I've also turned rice to complete mush before and served that to you. Yeah. But I also like, I like mushy. (laughs) That's true. We did just talk about how you made it more mushy. You made it more mushy. And I like, I like that dude. I'm going to absolutely cook as like an old person. Like once, once I start losing my teeth and it's like, ah, you gotta, everything you cook just has to be like, mushed and homogenized now and yeah else is you're like, gonna have such a head start oh, on everyone they're gonna be like everyone's like oh no i'm gonna miss all of the lovely textures and i'm like haha i've been preparing for this my whole life now i finally have an excuse and so no one can judge me for it um oh my gosh yeah i, I like mushy you roasts. love a mush yeah um but yeah yeah most most of the stuff you cook i i do really enjoy but the the chicken shawarma is my favorite Nice. Thank you. All right. I think that does it yeah. for this episode of the podcast. Lindsay, do you have any any final words and thoughts to share with, final words with all thoughts. of your fans? Hmm. Yeah. Um, signing off. 
I feel very confident that we're leaving you in great hands and that you're going to enjoy the new lineup of Pack and Milo and Greg. And I will still be here in spirit, likely in the next room over from where Greg is recording. So I'll, I'll still hear him talking. I'll still be in the Facebook group, on the subreddit. Um, I'm the one who does the Instagram. So if you want to say something nice, you can send me a DM on Instagram to cut through all of the spam that we get. But I have really enjoyed this time on the podcast with you, Greg. And I am very grateful for the support. And if you miss me, just listen to the Aspartame episode. It's enough content to last you a lifetime. And I have enjoyed doing it with you. Uh, It has been a blast. But for the last time with this current hosting lineup, uh, we're signing off. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. We will be back in two weeks with Milo and Pac. And uh, we're we're very excited for all of the changes that have already occurred and everything else that is to come in 2024. Stay tuned. Watch this space. There is the best as yet to come. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, Yes. So Lindsay mentioned we mostly only get. Uh, just like spam messages to the the inbox of the Stronger by Science Instagram account. Like it's yeah. it's mostly just like fucking hustle grind set people who are just like, hey, do you need to write marketing d- emails? Yeah, can, I'm like, no, what? I know how to write a marketing email. It's my whole job. Yeah, can I send over a bespoke email sequence I wrote for you? Like, no. Sh- and they're up. like 17 years old. Yeah, it's like, shut up. You have no idea what you're doing. Um, but yeah, that's like all of the messages we get on the Stronger by Science Instagram account. So, if you know what reference he was making, <laughs> message the account and, um, oh man, I wish I, you know what, uh, if you don't currently have a, um, if you don't, ha- if you don't have a copy of Art and Science of Lifting and you're one of the first three people that understood what reference Lindsay was making, because that's, that's a deep cut that I think you need to have your your brain's like a little bit broken if you yeah. understood what that was immediately. And if so, we love and appreciate you. And first three people to message the <laughs> the business Instagram account and say what that reference was, we'll we'll hook you up with a free book. Okay. okay. Bye guys. Bye guys. Bye guys.